right. Uh, again, just to mention, my name is Paul Stiver. I am one of the elders here at Hope Lower Town. It's my joy uh, to be preaching through what maybe is my favorite book in the entire Bible, the letter to the Ephesians written by the Apostle Paul to this church in Ephesus to be passed around to their churches. Uh, this, we are already in week 12 of this sermon series. We're going to get into chapter 4 today. But before we get into the message, I want to talk about one of the greatest movie franchises in history. I'm talking, of course, about The Fast and the Furious. If you haven't, that's all? That's all The Fast and the Furious gets? Jeremiah probably thought I was going to say Star Wars, but this is a much better franchise than that. Um, Fast and the Furious, uh, if you haven't seen it, one of the greatest uh, franchises of all time. It's, uh, this is just a picture. It's a, it's, a, it's a group of people. I put on their family is everything. You can picture, if you haven't seen the movie, uh, that guy in the middle is Dominic Toretto, played by the one and only Vin Diesel. And he, uh, the core kind of values of this movie throughout the nine movies I think they have now is that family is, is everything. Family matters. Um, so there's, there's, it's more than just explosions and insane stunts and heists and all kinds of Things this ragtag bunch comes together um, because they're family. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. But before we get into that, we've got to go back to last week. In the completion of praise, Brian touched on this idea. The Apostle Paul here, Ephesians is six chapters long. This is the end of chapter three, and it's kind of a pivot point into chapters four through six. And the Apostle Paul has, in the first three chapters, unpacked this remarkable idea of grace that we're going to look at. And now he's, he can't help. He's, he's got to complete the praise by praying this and rejoicing, kind of in the same way that when a team scores a touchdown, you don't just sit there and go, all right, good touchdown. We celebrate. Or when a great song comes on the radio in the car, you don't just listen to it. You sing along. We've got to complete the praise. Paul says this to complete the praise of the great doctrine that he's unpacked in the first three chapters of Ephesians. He says, And I pray that you, he's writing to the church, I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people, otherwise known as the church, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power, that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So the Apostle Paul unpacks all this doctrine and he can't help but just say, God, get the glory for this. What you've done deserves praise. But we see a remarkable thing in verse 21 there. It says, to him, to God, be the glory in the church. And I think right now, especially when we think about church and uh, we think all kinds of different things. The church is a building. The church is where good people go to get better. The church is uh, a place that hurts people, what it, whatever it might be. And here we see, to God be the glory in the church. It's remarkable that we, as the church, are included in God's plan. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. The message is titled, The Church, A Calling or a Choice. A Calling or a Choice from Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Is our, is our belonging to a church or belonging to the church, a calling or a choice? So let's look at the passage. It says here in chapter 4, 1 through 6. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, 
one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And so we start off right there, exhorted to a worthy life. The Apostle Paul is going to pivot from chapters 1 through 3, all this grace, and he's actually going to say, now I urge you, as a prisoner, he's calling back to his imprisonment. He's like, I'm here suffering in prison, and now I'm urging you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And if you've been with us through Ephesians, you're wondering how he's doing this. Because we went through the first three chapters, and it's all grace. It's all God did this, God did this, God did this. There's only one imperative or one kind of command given in chapter 2, which is remember. And what are we remembering? What God did for us. And now all of a sudden, he's pivoting, he's switching to say, now you've got to live a life worthy of this. I'm urging you to live a life worthy of this. So is it grace or is it works? Is it effort? Is it I have to do this? And, and so we have to ask first, what is this worthy life? And for that, we go back in Ephesians 2, chapter 2, where we see this idea of grace. It says in chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we've got this. This is kind of the grand idea of Christianity. This kind of old self, new self. That earlier in chapter 2 of Ephesians, he says we were dead in sin, opposed to God, unable to save ourselves. And then in verse 5, he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, made us alive in Christ. We go from death to life. We go from an old self to a new self. And this new self is created by God in Christ to do good works. Works that were prepared in advance for us to do, which is surprising. Actually, now change. I want to do good works. I want to live in a different way. We've got to get this concept for that. I go to uh, 1998, should have won Best Picture, took second place. It's controversial. But this is the movie Saving Private Ryan. So if you, who's that you? <laughs> we get a one cheer for Saving Private Ryan. This came out, I believe, 98. That's Tom Hanks there in the middle. He's Captain Miller. On the side there is Matt Damon. He plays Private Ryan. And the plot of the movie, spoiler alert, it is uh, 24 years old. So if you haven't seen it by this time, that's on you, not on me. Uh, that's, we deem that as fits in the rules of spoilers. Um, but in the film, the kind of the tension of the movie is that, that Ryan, Private Ryan, has three other brothers, and they have all perished in this war. And they find out, the, the military finds out about this, and, and for PR purposes, public relations purposes, morale purposes, they say, we can't let this last brother die. We can't let this mother be grieved in that way. So send this team, Captain Miller's team, a group of men, to go in, find this guy, and redeem him, save him, deliver him so that this mother isn't grieved and we can win this battle of morale. And that's kind of the tension throughout the movie. Why are we sending this many people to redeem, to save the one? And so we get a description of this from an article. Uh, it says, in a memorable scene that takes place, notably inside a church, Captain Miller himself, Tom Hanks's character, expresses doubts about the cost-benefit logic of the mission. This Ryan better be worth it, he says. He better go home and cure some disease or invent the longer-lasting light bulb or something. Throughout the film, the question of worth is central. This is the main tension in the plot. 
Miller and the others ponder whether Ryan's life will be as precious and valuable as the lives spent to purchase his freedom. But of course it won't be. That's how grace works. It's offensively asymmetrical. And that idea of grace is what we saw in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, that that what we see in that is the good news of the gospel, that there is a costly liberation of the unworthy, that Jesus himself, the truly precious one, comes to save us, to purchase our freedom through his death. This grace is the one directional love of God on our behalf. And that's why Paul ends chapter 3 with praising. He can't believe God's remarkable love for us. It's offensively asymmetrical. We would never imagine redeeming the unworthy, but it's what God set out to do, and he gave the worthy one for the unworthy. But we have to keep looking at the tension in this movie. And this is a scene from the end of the movie where Captain Miller is dying, and he he calls Private Ryan to lean in. And he says to him, earn this. Earn it. But the rest of your life now, Earn this. Earn what we've done for you. Earn us dying that you might live. This article continues, as if the burden of Ryan's undeserved rescue isn't heavy enough. He didn't even want him to save him. Captain Miller's dying words to him are a devastating call to worthiness. Earn this. Earn it. Now here's the difference. He says, thank God, the author here says, thank God those weren't the dying words of Christ on the cross. Instead, Jesus offered words that should release us from any lingering sense that we somehow contribute to our salvation. It is finished. With Ernest ringing in his ears for the rest of his life, Ryan must live a life worthy of his rescue. What a tragedy. Actually, the end scene of the movie is him going to Captain Miller's grave and and saying, I tried to live a good life. He's appealing to his wife, tell me I'm a good person. Tell me I've lived a good life. What a tragedy, the author says, and this is why. Because Jesus never tells us to earn anything. He's done it for us. That's why he says it is finished. And yet we are called to live a worthy life. We are called to respond. And that's what this worthy life is. The gospel life, the Christian life, antithetical to every other way of thinking in the world and every other religion is this. You can't earn this. God did it on your behalf. Receive it. Respond to it. The gospel life is a life of response to God's grace. To the good news of Jesus, that Jesus came and lived the perfect life, died in my place, rose again so that I can have new life and eternal life in him. And we got to get this. This is Gospel 101, but it's central for our understanding of Christian ethics. Because as we move to chapters 4 through 6, we've got to understand that the Apostle Paul is saying, respond to God's grace, respond to that rescue in these ways. Respond with joy. So we got to hammer it home. Tim Keller helps us get gospel ethics right. He kind of compares the two view systems, religion versus the gospel. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. 
My motivation in a religious heart is, is fear and insecurity. I just got to prove I'm good enough. I'm not sure if I am, so I've got to keep trying, keep grinding, keep working harder. Where my, <laughs> my motivation in the gospel is just grateful joy. God isn't asking anything of me. And yet I can respond with such gratitude. And lastly, I obey God. The religion, in religion, I obey God in order to get things from God. God, if I'm good enough, will you now bless me? But the gospel, we saw this in Ephesians 1, we're blessed. And now we obey to get more of God, to delight in him, to resemble him. He doesn't say to us, earn this. And we've got to understand that foundational understanding of the gospel. I'm accepted, therefore I obey. I'm accepted by grace. I'm saved by grace, therefore I respond. Before we move to chapters 4 through 6, because we're going to get now calls to live in certain ways. And so we go back to our passage, and it says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, through the bond of peace. And we see all of these things are communal. Verses 2 and 3. Be gentle. Who? Toward me? Toward others. Be patient with others. Bear with one another in love. Seek unity. This, Paul is saying, is what worthy life, the worthy life, responding to God's grace, looks like in the church. Fighting for peace, being humble, being gentle, being patient, being forgiving. So we have to ask again, the church is the church a calling or a choice? And why do we ask this? Why put this forward today? Because if, if the church and belonging to a church, seeking meaningful connection to a church is just a choice, is only a choice, then I can opt in or out based on my preferences, based on how it suits my own fulfillment, based on how it meets my needs in my own estimation. But if the church is a calling, then God can ask things of me. Belonging to the church can ask things of me. And so we have to consider this because we live in a culture where the greatest value, possibly the highest value, is the freedom to choose. And to choose things that make us happy. And so we're going to look at something. We're going to look at a concept called expressive individualism because this is a water, this is something we swim in as our culture, and it influences us. So first we're going to unpack this quote by Charles Taylor here. It says, The understanding of life which emerges with the romantic expressivism of the late 18th century, and that is this, that each of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity, and that it is important to find and live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from outside by society or the previous generation or religious or political authority. What he's saying is this historical shift has happened starting in this, with this romantic expressivism of the late 18th century, this shift toward the self as the locus of society. Instead of thinking about the family or the community or the group as the center of society in the West, we've shifted to think of the self as the primary agent and most important person in society, which means that the free choice of the self, especially as it relates to happiness, and fulfillment is the highest value and the highest good. 
we don't want to impose on someone's right to choose what would make them happy, what would make them fulfilled. Because if we do that, we're blocking their ability to find and live out their own happiness, their own fulfillment. And so continuing on, expressive individualism uh, continues with these ideas. The highest good then is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. Traditions, regulations, received wisdom, or religions, received wisdom, regulations, and social ties that restrict individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression must be reshaped, deconstructed, or destroyed. No one can tell us what to do, especially if it means it will limit my freedom, my happiness, or my ability to express who I am. This is a cultural thing. This is what we swim in. If you don't believe me, listen to the lyrics from the song Let It Go by Frozen in the, in the movie Frozen, right? That's the whole point. Let these things go. I'm free to choose. No one else can define for me what is happiness, what is fulfillment. Continuing on, Matt Smethurst says this, if traditional cultures tended to reduce people to their duties. So in older, in older, olden, in olden cultures, uh, people were their duties. You were, who are you? I'm a barber. Who are you? I'm a baker. My last name's Baker and I bake. It's kind of a sweet gig though. I wouldn't mind being a baker. Um, if traditional cultures tended to reduce people to their duties, the modern world reduces people to their desires. And he says, just listen to the soundtrack of our age. Follow your heart. Be true to yourself. Find yourself, love yourself, express yourself, believe in yourself. And we don't condemn these things outright necessarily, but this is the soundtrack of our age. These are the waters in which we swim. He continues, We inhabit a secular age in which transcendence has been thinned out and trivialized, and the sovereign self, a phrase just means I am in control, not anyone else, and I get to choose, the sovereign self thrust to the center of the stage. Nowadays, pilgrimages to find truth, beauty, and goodness don't require a plane ticket, just a mirror. So why do we talk about expressive individualism as it relates to this idea of the church? These are the waters in which we swim. These are things that influence and impact our thinking. And here's the funny thing. As sinners, if we're in that place today and we're acknowledging ourselves as sinners, we know I don't need any help to choose me. I wake up every day choosing me first. This influences the way we think and especially influences the way we think about committing to meaningful connection to a church. Is it a calling or a choice? And to drive this home further, this is Young Mozart. It'd be a cool rap name, by the way, Young Mozart. Mozart was, was playing the harpsichord at age four and composing simple music at age five. But what if he said, you know what? I'm thinking of taking up golf. Masters of this week. I'm thinking, you know what? I, it seems like I maybe have some prodigy leanings toward music, but I kind of want to hit the links. Um, right? what, if we, what if young Mozart said that? We'd say, no. You were made for music. You were called to this. This is who you are. If you go after golf, you'll miss out on being who you were made to be. We'll miss out on the contribution you could have made. If the church is just a choice, belonging to a church, having meaningful connection to a church is just a choice, best set up to serve the self, 
then we're missing out. We're missing out on belonging in a meaningful way. We're missing out on contributing in a meaningful way. And the reality is, and Paul's telling us, we can't do the Christian life apart from the church because the church is not a choice. It is a calling. It is a calling instituted by God. It says here, and I want to highlight these two verses, one and four. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And then he reminds us, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope when you were called. This idea of calling out of your old life into your new life is all over the New Testament, but we're just going to look at a few places we've seen it in Ephesians already. Starting in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, it says, I pray, Paul not praying in chapter 1 says, I pray that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Paul wants our eyes, the eyes of our hearts to be made aware of what? The riches of God's inheritance in his church, in his holy people. He wants us to see how beautiful his church is and then to know his resurrection power. In chapter 2, we see a different calling, a calling to unity out of distance. It says in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. That Christ in his death is actually calling distant people together into his church, into this one body to know God. And he puts to death our hostility with one another and our hostility against God by his body dying on the cross. In Ephesians 3, we see this remarkable plan of God that actually involves the church. It says his intent now, God's intent, what God was up to throughout all of history was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Christ and through faith in Christ, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. God was calling us into his plan through the church, through us, through bringing divided people together and reconciling people through the blood of his son. He's putting us on display and saying, look at my wisdom. Who would redeem sinners? Me. Who would bring divided people together? God says, I do. And this was his eternal purpose. Martin Lloyd-Jones then says this in the idea of calling. He says, a church, the church is nothing but a gathering of the called. The very term in Greek for church is ekklesia, which means the called out ones. The apostle has referred to that in the previous chapter, now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church. Otherwise, in other words, among the called ones or the called out ones. 
He continues, Christians are those who have been called out of the world, out of darkness, into his marvelous light. The Christian must never be thought of as someone who has decided to take up a certain type of life. The Christian life must never be thought of in terms of something that we have decided to take up. It's the exact opposite. It is something to which we have been called. The church is part of God's eternal purpose. It's part of his design. It is a God-given blessing for us to belong. In other words, it is a calling. He says here, then, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. He says, be so meaningfully connected to one another that you need to practice humility and gentleness, that you're going to need to be patient. And I know me, the patience required. And I know you, patience also required. Uh, just saying. Uh, bearing with one another in love. You're going to be so meaningful connected in this worthy life that you're going to need to forgive. And you're going to actually have to strive to keep unity. But the reality is if church is just a choice, then I can bow out when my patience is tested. I can bow out when I'm called to forgive. I can bow out when there's dissension, disunity. But if it's a calling, if belonging to the church is a calling, something given by God to us for our good, then he can ask us to pursue something greater than ourselves. And so we have to see this, the last three verses here of our passage, the seven perfect ones. Paul can't help, but even when he's urging us, he can't help but get back to, to teaching us and reminding us of important realities. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So Paul's reminding us this call to unity, this call to patience and humility and gentleness is rooted in God and his gospel itself. It's rooted in all of his character, his oneness, and the oneness of his purpose to save a people. Which means that the church is not a book club, although we like a good book club from time to time. The church is not a Facebook group that we can opt in or out of. The church is not a gym membership that we can uh, purchase and then never go. That's my, I actually just started going though, I'm back. Uh, the church is not an add-on to a meaningful life. The church is a blood-bought Spirit-filled people called by God to belong to Him and to one another and to live our lives in hope that He's coming back. Which means the church is central to life. And that we need to understand God's grace and His character and we need His power, His Spirit in order to live this out, to live this worthy life. Lynn Kohick in her commentary says this, Together, these character traits can be thought of as the necessary traveler's kit for all believers as they embark on their journey of faith. To be faithful to their calling, to express Christian love, to model unity requires the supernatural grace offered by God and Christ through the Spirit, witnessed by the one baptism and one faith shared by all believers. 
She's saying we need God's grace to do this and we need each other to do this. Because family, we got to bring it back to Fast and the Furious. You knew I would. You knew I had to. Now, Fast and the Furious, every time, every one of the movies, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen them, that's really on you. Hey, what was the sermon about today? I don't know, but I have to go watch all the Fast and Furious movies. Oh, great. All right. Great job, Pastor. Uh, so because family, though, that's kind of the idea of these movies, right? That they end the movies with a table, with dining together because they're family. They're in this together. And actually, the guy in here that's sitting down was the villain in this movie. But he's invited back in. The reality for us is that we were all the villain that God invites to his table. He's the one that built the table. He's the one that does the calling. And he's the one that created the church and calls us into it so that we can have family, so that we can live in hope. And we can glorify him as we await that final feast, that final table with Jesus. So I want to make a transition, a little bit of a practical transition to think about now small groups. Because we're called to one another in this body. If the church is, is a calling and not a choice, how do we respond to this? How do we respond to God's grace? And at Hope Lower Town, we do small groups. What a small group is, is, is a, a group of 10 to 20 people who gather regularly, typically weekly, although in the summer it kind of divides up a little bit and maybe re- meet every other week. And they gather, we gather together for community, for Bible study, and accountability. Community is just enjoying one another, fellowship. Bible study is that we are people of God's word and we want to understand his gospel better and we do that in community. And then accountability, help me cling to the hope. We need each other. And so at Hope Lower Town, we do small groups as a response to what God's done. It says, I'm reading from our Why Small Groups at Hope Community Church, it says, At Hope Lower Town, we are committed to creating a church environment in keeping with God's command where people are being properly shepherded. We believe proper shepherding includes providing a place where followers of Christ can be truly known for their strengths and struggles and truly know others, can grow in their relationship with God through exposure and application of his word, can be challenged to grow in their faith walk and combat sin through regular accountability are offered care and concern while learning to care and be concerned for others. Helping one another. One of the reasons we do small groups is so we can learn how to be the church, how to love one another. A place where we can give back to the body of Christ and our community by exploring and using the unique gifts God has given us. A place where we can learn to, to be and to serve the church as God equips us. A place where people are offered protection and a safe place to be themselves. This is why we do small groups at Hope. <laughs> the analogy I use is imagine you're a grape and you say, you know what, I like being on the bunch, but I actually like being uh, on my own a lot better. And so you pluck yourself off of the bunch of grapes. What do you become? You become a raisin. You dry up. You lose life. All right, you're still, you're still pretty sweet though. Raisins are good too. So all analogies break down. Right, but life is found in community, especially because God has called us to this. One example here from our very own Megan Oren says this, coming to Hope Lower Town and being a part of a small group has helped me to come to know Jesus more deeply and has impacted my faith greatly. My small group reads scripture together and does life together. We grow in our faith together and encourage one another in God-honoring ways. We show up as ourselves 
and wholeheartedly accept one another exactly as God has created us, quirks, lame jokes, and all. I have only known these men and women for seven months, and already they've added meaning to the term brothers and sisters in Christ. Much love for us. We get the shout out, right? But that, and you say, how, this is, this is what God's called us to, to meaningful connection, to fellowship, to community, to growing together. If you're interested, I'm putting this forward because we want you to be connected. That's one of the reasons why we exist as a church is to help connect people to one another and to God. If you're interested in getting into a small group, you can go onto our website, hopecc.com, and find the Get Connected page, or you can email lowertown at hopecc.com. But there's one more thing we need to highlight, and that's small group leaders. This is Chaz, Amy, and Nolan. That's Chaz and Amy on the left, and then Nolan, and then Chaz and Nolan. I, cut, I, I had to censor some of the pictures because they were drinking alcohol in the, some of these photos. Shocking. Um, so there, these, these three uh, planted a small group out of their own small group recently, and that small group has actually already filled up. They have responded to God's grace, and God blessed that grace by helping people get connected to one another. And the reality is we need more small groups to keep making this happen, which means we need more small group leaders. Some of you are capable and need to heed these words, being honest. I'm urging you to live a worthy life. But here, let's cast vision this way instead. Amy wrote me a nice little note describing her thought process behind why planting a new small group, and it encourages my cold little Midwestern heart so much. She says, I wasn't necessarily looking to start or lead a small group. I've been in a couple different small groups over the past seven years, and I've always been fine simply showing up and participating. But as the need for new small groups at Lower Town continued to grow, Chaz and I, her husband, asked, started talking about the potential of breaking off and leading a new small group. And when Brian and Paul asked us to do just that, we decided it was a good opportunity to step out and serve in a new way. Or at least for me to serve in a new way, Chaz has led several small groups in the past. She continues, as someone who's not the most outgoing person in the room, I wasn't sure if leading a small group would be something I was good at. But it hasn't been as daunting as I thought it might be. Prepping to lead a study has honestly been a good impetus to get into the Bible and do some personal studying and reflection. And leading a study is actually more like facilitating and guiding a conversation. It's been encouraging to see growth in myself that I can serve in a way that I didn't really think I was gifted at. But she says, but I think the best part has been the new relationships that are forming in our group. I've made so many new friendships with people at Lower Town through our group, and I'm grateful that we've been a place for more people to land and get plugged in. When we step into God's calling, his blessing is on us. When we respond to his grace, making every effort, he's right there with us doing all, more than we could ask or imagine. And we've got to end there. We've got to get to Jesus. We can't just stop there because the reality is we won't move toward meaningful community. We won't move toward meaningful connection. We won't walk into this calling apart from Jesus and apart from understanding his grace. So we go back to these verses. And I want to point out something that we make all these efforts through the bond of peace. And that peace is the peace made by the blood of the cross. That we just didn't need to try harder to belong to one another. We needed a Savior. 
And so now we respond because Jesus is the one who made every effort. We respond because he's the bond of peace. His cross unites us. His cross transforms us to new life. He's the one. It's not that the many went to rescue the one. The one came to rescue the many. The truly humble one, the one described as the one who would not break a bruised reed, the truly gentle one, the truly patient one, the only one who's been sinned against is the one who forgives. He's the truly forgiving Savior who calls us into his church, into his love for our good and his glory as we await that final day where we see him face to face and we see our hope realized together. So as we close, I just want to remind you and encourage our hearts, Jesus loves his church. Jesus loves Hope Lower Town. He was glad to die for us, glad to rescue us. And he doesn't tell us to turn around now and earn it. He tells us to enjoy it. And one of the ways we enjoy it is with one another. So what would it look like for you to respond to that love, to that calling? We're going to move now to a time of communion. Uh, and that's a great time for us to respond, to remember here at Hope, we practice what we call open communion. We've got the, the juice and the wafer on both sides here. Um, we ask, we don't have to be a member of this church or any church. We just ask that you be a follower of Christ. And maybe today's the day. Maybe today's the day you're like, I've never understood that grace. I've never heard this good news. Today can be the day that you come forward, take communion as a faith response. Saying, I do. I put my faith in Jesus. We're going to, I'm going to invite the worship team back up. We're going to move to a time of communion and just take a moment to reflect on the reality that Jesus loves his church. He loves you. More than tongue or pen could ever tell, he loves you. So much so, and how do we know? Because he died for us. He was glad to die for us so that we now could be redeemed and called to this new life. Let me pray and we'll move to a time of worship through communion and song. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your eternal purpose was to glorify yourself through the church and you've accomplished your purpose in Christ, that he has died and bought us with his blood, that we now belong to you and to one another. If our faith is in you, we are accepted for all time. And now we just respond to that grace by your spirit at work within us. So I pray now, would your spirit change our hearts? shape our minds to think rightly about you and transform us to love and worship you more. Help us to sing your praises and be honored and glorified now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.